0: following audio is from river city baptist church in richmond virginia for more information visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org paul and timothy servants of christ jesus to all god's holy people in christ jesus at philippi together with the overseers and deacons grace and peace to you from god our father and the lord jesus christ Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. It's a new year, and we are starting a new series called Joy to the Church, A Journey Through Philippians. The plan is to walk through the whole book, finishing up around Easter, at which point we'll return to the second half of Mark's gospel. This morning, we're just going to be looking at the first two verses of this letter, and that's the first thing to understand. It's a letter. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of Philippi, modern-day Greece. It's sometime between A.D. 60 and 62, and Paul is in Rome, not writing from the safety of his home or the comfort of his study, but from a jail cell as he awaits his fate under the reign of Caesar. His circumstances could hardly be worse, hardly more bleak and dire, and yet As we're going to see in these pages, despite his circumstances, Paul is buoyant with confidence and joy, not because of what he sees when he looks at the walls around him, but because of what he sees when he looks to the Savior who is with him. We're going to think about these opening verses in three points. First, saints compose the church. Second, elders lead the church and third, deacons serve the church. Saints compose it, elders lead it, deacons serve it. Fair warning, the last two points are going to feel maybe a little less like a Typical sermon here and more like a Sunday school class. And that's because I want to seize an opportunity this morning, provided by this passage, to double click on a couple words and do a deeper dive into what Scripture more broadly has to say about them. So, first of all, saints compose the church. The letter begins with the standard template for ancient greetings uh, author's name, self description, intended recipients and so on. Almost all scholars agree that Paul wrote this letter. He repeatedly refers to himself in the first person throughout it. I, I, I. So why, then, in verse 1, do we read Paul and Timothy? Why does he include Timothy's name? Well, we don't know for sure, but it's likely because Timothy was not only his close ministry partner, but was also known to the Philippian church. So go ahead and look, at, look ahead to Philippians chapter 2. Look ahead to Philippians chapter 2 starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him, Timothy, as soon as I see how things go with me, that is, with his judicial trial. So because Timothy is with Paul in Rome and Paul hopes to send him to Philippi, he includes Timothy's name in the greeting. What's also interesting is that among all of Paul's letters, a couple features here are distinct, unique to Philippians. For one, this is the only time that Paul addresses church officers in a greeting, overseers and deacons in one of his greetings. The other interesting feature is that it's, this is the only greeting in all of Paul's letters in which he doesn't call himself an apostle. This is not because he's taking a sabbatical from apostleship. It's because he wants to emphasize at the very outset his status as a servant, or more literally a slave. That's the word he uses, and he does so in order to preview for us to preview for the Philippians one of the main themes that we'll see throughout the letter, and that is self-giving, self-denying, self-emptying service for others. Well, if he calls himself and Timothy servants of Christ, how does he identify this local church? Middle of verse 1, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Some translations say to all the saints, which doesn't mean super spiritual Christians, much less those canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. No, saints is a glorious and precious biblical term for all believers. The word simply means holy ones or holy people as it's rendered here. It's an identity statement. If you belong to Christ, You are a saint. You are a holy one. You are the object of a transfer, a divine transfer from the kingdom of darkness and the sphere of Satan into the realm of the holy. What Paul has in mind here is not progressive growth in holiness, which we often think about when we think about this topic and Paul often writes about. But but here he doesn't have in mind kind of progressive holiness, but rather positional holiness. A position, a status that becomes true of every believer at the moment of their conversion. God's people have always, always been marked out as holy, set apart for him, consecrated to him because only a distinct People can reflect the character of a distinct God. Being holy, beloved, doesn't mean, and I'm not just addressing church members, I'm also here addressing guests because I don't know what your perception is of Christians and what we think of ourselves, but being holy does not mean we're perfect. It means that Jesus has made a decisive and conspicuous difference in our lives. By the way, notice that Paul presumes in saying to all God's holy people, he presumes that everyone in this congregation is a saint, a genuine believer. This is not a spiritually mixed body of people. This is why we're careful and intentional here at RCBC about practicing what's called regenerate church membership laboring to ensure that every church member is, in fact, regenerate, made new by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the main responsibilities of a church, according to the Bible, to seek as best we can to ensure that everyone we affirm through baptism and membership and continue to affirm through the Lord's Supper actually belongs to the Lord himself. I mean, few things, let me just say this, You, you may think, Matt, you say this is one of the main things a church should be about. Well, I thought churches were about helping the poor or doing evangelism. Why is it so important to kind of guard the borders of the church and make sure that only believers are part of it? Because it has everything to do with loving the lost, Otherwise, we are just a mirror, not a question mark for the world that, raises, that w- raises curiosity about what is it that makes us different and compelling, but rather just a mirror that reflects them back to themselves. Listen, few things have wrought more devastation in our culture. For all the benefits that we might experience In American culture, few things have wrought more devastation than the scourge of nominal Christianity, Christians in name only, who might have a baptism certificate or a place on a membership roll somewhere, but whose lives for decades sometimes have borne no spiritual fruit because there was never real spiritual life. Perhaps you're visiting today and you are a cultural Christian, a nominal Christian, but nothing more. Might I suggest that God loves you enough to have you here this morning because he wants to correct a misunderstanding you may have? Maybe you think you know what the gospel is because it's a word you've heard thousands of times in environments like this, but maybe you don't actually understand. The gospel. I mean, we were just looking in verse 1 at the term holy ones, referring to all believers. But most fundamentally, friend, we are not the holy ones. God is the holy one. The only reason the Bible can talk about us as holy is because God is supremely and majestically holy. He is intrinsically pure. It, it, it's, it's not something that he's deriving from an outside source. God's holiness is inherent to his character. That cannot be said of us. And friend, maybe instead of living for him, building your life around him, maybe you have spent your days and months and years, maybe even decades, living for yourself, seeking to construct a little kingdom with yourself at the center, with yourself on the throne. And in doing so, you haven't just committed a just a, a minor mistake. Sin is not like a, a heavenly parking ticket. No, sin is an act of cosmic treason. In living for yourself rather than for God, you have belittled his worth, you've neglected his presence, you've offended his character, and yet, perhaps, if, if you're a, a cultural Christian, a nominal Christian, perhaps you flatter yourself to think that because you've done some good things or avoided some bad things or are sitting in a church this morning, that he's going to understand that, that it's all going to be okay for you in the end. But we love you enough here at RCBC to say, it's not. It's not. Supreme holiness cannot peacefully coexist with sin. God is so holy that, that trying to stand. In his presence, on your own merit, your own moral record, your own spiritual performance, trying to stand before God with your sin is is like trying to hold tissue paper to the surface of the sun. As one person has observed, the sun will burn your eyes out from 92 million miles away, and yet we think we can casually stroll into the presence of its creator, This is serious stuff. Sin has separated us from God and we deserve his judgment forever, which is why it makes it so astonishing that Paul has the audacity to write to these Philippian sinners, rebels, and call them holy. Holy. Well, how can he do that? The answer is because of where they're now located. Look at the next three words. To all God's holy people who are where? In Christ Jesus. That's the safest location on earth. In Christ. In Christ is one of the Bible's richest phrases. In this short letter to the Philippians, Paul's gonna use it more than 20 times. And oh friend, this is the astonishing news of the gospel. Maybe you've yawned at it before, you should not yawn at it today. The astonishing news is that the same God who made you for his glory, in whom you have neglected and belittled and offended, is willing to consider you too to be holy in his sight if you will simply turn away from your sin to lay down your rebellion and to come to him in simple faith. To trust Jesus the Savior and what he has accomplished in your place in his life and death and resurrection to rescue you from the fate you deserve and instead of judging you to forgive you and to grant you a new heart and everlasting life. The way to become a holy one Friend, is something you can do this morning. The way to become a holy one is to connect yourself, to unite yourself by faith to the holy one. Saints compose the church. Number two, elders lead the church. Elders lead the church. Look again at verse one. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. This should catch our attention because it's the only time in the New Testament. And I already said it's the only time that Paul includes these church officers in his greeting. But this is also the only verse in all the New Testament in which both offices appear. Well, why does it happen here? Why why do we see both the office of overseer and the office of deacon in the same verse? Again, we don't know exactly why. Perhaps, though, it's because these leaders are going to have to be a significant part of the solution solution to the problem of church unity that is plaguing this body. I mean, if they, if if the overseers and deacons don't catch a vision for self-emptying service, then it's not going to catch on in the rest of the church. Well, let's examine these two formal church offices. There are only two of them in the Bible. Here they are. We'll we'll examine them in this point and the next. First of all, the overseers. The overseers. Now, you may wonder, how how does this group, overseers, differ from, say, pastors or elders? And the answer is, they don't. We're looking at three interchangeable terms for the same office. I, I, I don't just want you to take my word for it. I want to show this to you in a few places because it matters. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, a few books behind Philippians. Paul gives an address the elders in Ephesus. And this is what we read, starting in verse 17, Acts 20, verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And then he begins addressing these elders. Now look down at verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you elders. No. Overseers. He calls the elders overseers, and then look at the very next thing he says. The very next thing he says, be shepherds. The word is pastor. Pastor the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So in this one passage, we see all three terms, elder, overseer, shepherd, referring to one church office. Now turn to Uh, a book after Philippians, Titus. Turn to Paul's letter to Titus near the end of the New Testament. I'll start reading in verse 5. Paul writes to Titus, "The The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you Verse six, an elder, so he's talking clearly, obviously, about elders, and he goes on to list some qualifications. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an, not elder, verse seven, since an overseer. So there it is again synonymous terms. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So again, elders are overseers, overseers are elders. Finally, I want you to look at 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter. Chapter 5. This is sh- shortly after Titus, 1 Peter chapter 5. And one of the reasons we're looking at 3 passages rather than 2 or 1 on this is because these are load-bearing texts when it comes to understanding elders. And I just want you to hear, you know, good preaching is just holding a microphone to the mouth of God and letting him speak. And even though this sermon is a little atypical uh, in doing this deep dive, we want to hold the microphone to God and let him speak to us about what he understands elders to be. So 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Okay, so here's what he says to the elders. Verse two, be shepherds. Again, the verb there is pastors, pastor God's flock. That is under your care. And then what does it say here? Watching over. That's the idea of oversight, overseers. Not because you must but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. So again, here in 1 Peter 5, as well as Acts 20 and Titus 1, we see that according to the Bible, an overseer is an elder and an elder is a pastor and a pastor is an elder interchangeable words for the same church office and the same local church office the word overseer in other translations is translated bishop well hopefully what we've seen in acts 20 and titus 1 and 1st peter 5 should give anyone pause before they think that the role of a bishop is something the bible understands to exist outside of a local church no the bible understands All three, all this one position in these three these terms, overseer slash bishop, pastor or elder, to refer to one local church office. Now, what do these guys do? What do elders do? What's their job description? Well, they are to be men of character. We just saw that in the qualifications listed there in Titus chapter one. That's preeminent. They are to be men of unimpeachable character. They are to to pray. Uh, We see that in places like James 5, 17. When you're sick, call the elders to pray for you. They're to be able to teach. In fact, this is one of the things that distinguishes elders from deacons. When the qualifications for elders are listed in 1 Timothy 3, it's said that an elder must be able to teach. And part of what that means, I think, is what we just read in Titus 1. Elders are to encourage and sound doctrine and guard against false doctrine. Elders are to exercise oversight over the whole flock, not just a subset of it, the way a, a, a deacon, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but the way a deacon might be the point person for spearheading service in a particular area of the church's life, elders are entrusted with responsibility for the whole flock. But there's another verb, which I've saved for last, because I think it's kind of the summary verb. I think so many of these things are captured by the verb shepherd. Elders are shepherds. We've seen that in Acts 20 and 1st. Peter 5. That is what elders are called to do. And the way they shepherd, the way they feed, the way they guard, the way they care for is through all of these means. Now, so, okay, so there, that's a very brief sketch of what elders do. But there are a few other things that I think are useful to bear in mind. Be- before we move on to, to looking at deacons, just three things, three things to just bear in mind about elders. First of all, they are plural elders are plural. That's kind of the first thing to notice about them in the New Testament. That's the overwhelming pattern. Christ intends for every one of his churches to have multiple elders. Now, can you have a true church without multiple elders? Without any elders? Yes, but that's not the biblical ideal. Sometimes it's not possible to have multiple elders if there are no qualified guys, but that is the intention elders are plural. Another thing is elders have authority. Elders have real God-given authority in the church. Another kind of load-bearing passage for thinking about elders is Hebrews 13, 17. You don't have to turn there, but I would encourage you to at least write it down. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account to God. Do this, that is, trust them, follow them, submit to them, so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So he's saying it, do it for them and do it for you. Elders have real authority in the church. Now, there's a whole other talk I could give and you probably suspect I would love to give uh, about how elders, about how authority in the local church is not a zero-sum thing. It's not that elders have all the authority in the church. The Bible has many passages that talk about the congregation's authority, and we could think about other passages which, which sound that note and how elder authority and congregational authority relate, maybe for another day. So elders are plural. Elders have authority. And elders, third thing to see is elders are gifts. Elders are gifts to you from your king. The risen King Jesus has given them to his church. Again, just listen as I read from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Okay, what gifts? What gifts did the resurrected King Jesus give to his church? Ephesians 4, 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. The pastors and teachers, and what is their job? Verse 12 to equip his people for works of service so that the whole body of Christ may be built up. Now, it's not lost on me that of all the people in the room, I am the one standing up here saying, did you know that pastors are gifts and that you should trust and follow them? Like, can I get an amen? I mean, I, I, I realize the, the way it may appear. I mean, we live in an anti-authority age, an anti-authority age. It's the air we breathe. The, the idea for, for all of us, myself included, the idea that authority figures, authority figures can be gifts can seem counterintuitive, uh, to say the least. But, but I want you to hear this from me clearly, okay? I want you to hear this from me clearly. I, I in no way want to, want to blunt the force of passages that we, we've heard about obeying, submitting to, trusting, following elders. But I want you to know and hear from me that not all suspicion toward church leaders or even all opposition to church leaders is unwarranted. I mean, yes, some people are hyper-suspicious of their pastors and operate in bad faith and can never be pleased and will struggle to trust any faithful pastor. But, but, there are too many who have been genuinely hurt by spiritual leaders in their lives. Those who have, people who have wielded their spiritual authority for harm rather than for good. People who are supposed to care for their souls, for your souls, and if that hasn't happened, there's an understandable hesitancy, caution, maybe even fear, maybe even downright terror when you think of a human being being set in a place of authority over your life. Well, here's the thing I want you to, to, to hear as well is, is that the authority of elders, and be very careful if you ever find yourself in a spiritual environment or church where this is not made clear, the authority of elders is not intrinsic to the elders. Earlier I talked about how holiness is intrinsic to God. Authority is not intrinsic to elders. It is derived derived from God and his word. An elder without a Bible is an elder without authority. The the day I refuse to preach the gospel or the day I refuse to repent of obvious sin is the day that you should fire me as your pastor. And do so for the glory of God and for your good and frankly for my good. See, Josh, Sebastian, and I are your shepherds. We are your shepherds. We have a legitimate uh, role, authoritative role in your life, but we are not your chief shepherd. That title and that role belongs to your Savior alone. See, the three of us, (laughs) we are shepherds, but we're not shepherds first. We're sheep first and only then shepherds. We're your fellow members before we are your spiritual leaders. That's why if you remember in our covenanting service, you voted to install one another as members before installing elders because you can have a church without elders, but you can't have a church without members. Josh, Sebastian, and I are accountable. We are accountable. And we must remain accountable to one another, to you, and ultimately to Jesus the King. Oh, beware friend, beware of anyone who wants to be an authority in your life without having any authority in their own. And we would invite you to pray for us in this regard. This is a sobering topic. It's a weighty topic. We're we're meant to feel the gravity of it. So please pray for us in this regard. We are weak sinners. Holiness is not intrinsic to us the way it is to your Savior. So pray for us. Pray we would be faithful to embody and to example what we preach. Pray that our wives and our kids would flourish in our homes and be so happy that their husband and their daddy is a pastor Pray that we would have soft hearts toward you, our sheep, and that we would remember that you are not finally our sheep, but Christ's. Satan loves to discourage shepherds. He loves to discourage shepherds. So pray that we would have fortitude and joy in the work. Pray that we would be worthy of trust, and then pray that you would be able to trust. See, so there's, there's two ditches here. And, and it's, it's been, I think, well pointed out that it is a serious spiritual deficiency in any church to have either leaders who are untrustworthy or members who are incapable of trusting. Let's be a church that prays for one another, that encourages and spurs on one another so that we can operate in a way that God designed and that makes his wisdom shine bright. Saints compose the church. Elders lead the church. Third, deacons serve the church. Deacons serve the church. Now, as evidenced by the fact that this is a separate point, the first thing to know about deacons is that they are not elders. In too many churches... That's precisely, though, how they operate, either in that kind of shepherding role or more commonly as kind of an executive board of directors. But here's the sad irony. When that happens, a church is robbed of the benefit of both offices. Just think about it logically. When deacons function like elders, not only do you lose out on the gift of biblical elders? You also don't have biblical deacons. Turn with me, please, to back to the book of Acts. Back to the book of Acts to chapter six. Acts six. Let's look at the backstory behind the office. Earlier we heard Judy read the backstory in Acts 16 to the Uh, the church in Philippi, Acts chapter 6 gives us some of the backstory behind the office of deacon. Acts 6, starting in verse 1, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, that is the Greek-speaking, Greek-culture Jews, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I don't think this passage officially, officially establishes deacons. But I do think with most theologians throughout Christian history that it at least sets in motion a pattern that will soon become the position. The apostles here, the 12 apostles, are functioning like forerunners to elders, and the seven are functioning like forerunners to deacons, the two offices that we see in Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. So what is a deacon? Well, as a kind of thumbnail definition, a deacon is a model servant who assists the elders. So a model or an exemplary servant who assists the elders by doing three broad things, very broad buckets, but a deacon assists the elders by meeting tangible needs, protecting church unity, and facilitating the ministry of the word. A deacon is a model servant who assists the elders by meeting tangible needs, protecting church unity, and facilitating the ministry of the word. Let's briefly look at these in turn. So first, meet tangible needs. When you think of a deacon, I don't know what what comes to mind. Maybe you think of a handyman. Maybe you think of someone devoted to benevolence care or mercy ministry. And being a deacon is certainly not less than those things, but it's not also limited to those things. I mean, plenty of other needs in the life of a church can arise that might prevent elders from being able to give their best attention and their best energy toward the ministry of the word in prayer and prayer. So there's a sense in which, it's still football season, so I'll use this illustration, there's a sense in which deacons are like a congregation's offensive line whose job is to protect the quarterback. They, they rarely get attention or credit, but they are indispensable for both guarding and advancing the ministry of the word. Without them, pastors are going to suffer incessant distraction and are going to get sacked by an onrush of practical demands. Now I said that deacons meet. Uh, I said that deacons meet needs, right? Meet tangible needs, but the best ones are good at doing something before that. The best deacons are good at also spotting needs, not not just reacting to existing problems, but anticipating future ones. They love brainstorming creative solutions to anything that might impede the work of the elders or the flourishing of the word. Josh, Sebastian, and I are excited to nominate soon to you our first slate of deacons. And and what we're looking for in a diaconal candidate, what you should be looking for is a godly saint. So again, that's fundamental. That's that's, they, they meet the biblical qualifications laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. A godly saint who meets needs discreetly, that is, they don't need or want credit. Who does so at their own expense, that is, they sacrifice. And who does so without being asked. They love to just take initiative to solve problems. We're, we're looking for people, and by the way, this church is filled with them, who aren't angling for authority or needing to be babysat but they are just respected because they're reliable they are you could say a safe pair of hands seriously show me a church show me any church with distracted pastors in a derailed mission and i will show you a church without effective deacons so meet tangible needs second protect church unity protect church unity. I think, I'm convinced, this is the most overlooked role of a deacon. This is the most overlooked role of a deacon. The, the seven in Acts chapter six, those seven weren't merely deployed to solve a food problem. This wasn't just a little culinary quibble that the church was having. I mean, yes, food was the occasion the widows being overlooked, in the daily distribution. But food was just the occasion. What was really the problem, the the root of it, was a sudden and satanic threat to church unity, the very unity for which Jesus Christ had bled and died. This is all to say that deacons, just like the seven back in Acts 6, should be shock absorbers. Shock absorbers, that is, those in the congregation who muffle shock waves, not make them reverberate further. I mean, if a person is hard to please, if a person is contentious, they are not going to make a good deacon because you know what they're going to do? They're just going to end up compounding the very headaches deacons were meant to relieve. I mean, the best deacons have fine-tuned conflict radar. They're they're looking around, not not with a spirit of suspicion, but rather they are just sensitive to the fact that when they hear complaining, when they hear gossip, maybe veiled as prayer requests, you know, when they sense conflict brewing, they don't just hope it blows over. They stand up and they stand in the gap. They love solutions more than drama. And they love to be the people in the church who, who absorb shock so that it doesn't reverberate further. Deacons in a church should be the place where conflict and gossip go to die. Here's how Mark Dever puts it. Quote, you don't want people serving as deacons who are unhappy with your church. <laughs> the deacons should never be the ones who complain the loudest or jar the church with their actions or attitudes. Quite the opposite When you're considering who might serve as a deacon, look for people with gifts of encouragement. So deacons meet tangible needs, they protect church unity, and they facilitate, number three, they facilitate the ministry of the word. Did you notice how the passage in Acts 6 ended? Okay, Acts 6. Verse seven, so the conflict, remember, was was over food, but it wasn't really about food. It was about about the sudden massive threat to church unity. The stakes could not have been higher. The passage could have easily ended. We could read at the end of the story, so the word of God was thwarted as the believers divided among themselves. But instead, and here's the key, because of the seven, Because of those forerunners to deacons, because they stood up and solved the problem, we read in verse seven, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. These seven, these seven, Proto-deacons were faithful to diffuse the conflict and free the apostles to minister the word. It's not accidental then that what, when we get to a place like Philippians 1.1, when Paul lists the two offices, that he does it in that order. Overseers or elders first and deacons second. He does the same thing in 1 Timothy 3. He lists the qualifications for the office of elder first and then turns his attention to deacons. It's like he doesn't want us to catch our breath lest we miss the inseparable connection, even the logical order between the two offices. The office of deacon reports to, according to the Bible, reports to the office of elder. Of course, elders ultimately are reporting to the Bible. And Jesus himself. To adapt another illustration from Mark Dever, if the elders say, let's drive to D.C., it's not up to the deacons to come back and say, no, let's drive to Williamsburg instead. Now, the deacons can legitimately come back and say, our engine won't get us to D.C., perhaps we should reconsider. That's very helpful. But in general, their job is to support the destination set by the elders. Now, as we've already seen, as I've already confessed, elders are not infallible. Far from it. But this doesn't mean that God intends deacons to be what they've become in too many Baptist churches, which is essentially just another power block. Elders and deacons are not like the house and the senate. The the job of deacons is not to Check and balance the decisions of the elders. In a healthy church, godly deacons are glad to execute the vision and oversight of elders, not the other way around. But just because some churches, too many churches, wrongly elevate the role of deacon to that of a de facto elder, we dare not do the opposite, make the opposite mistake, and wrongly reduce the role of deacon to just kind of a financial wizard or successful business person or glorified janitor. I mean, faithful deacons should be able to see their fingerprints all over the church they quietly serve. Faithful deacons should be able to see their fingerprints on every sermon that's preached. Our pastor would not be able to do that or at least not nearly so effectively I hope you think it's effective. That wasn't a a way to compliment myself. But our pastor would not be able to do that if I wasn't doing this. Faithful deacons should see their fingerprints in the unity of the church, the unity for which Jesus prayed in John 17 and died. Today, there are brothers and sisters in this church, a deacon can think, who love one another that otherwise wouldn't who are living together in unity that otherwise wouldn't be because of the service I've provided. Faithful deacons should see their fingerprints in the welfare of all the church and even in the church's worldwide witness. Because I saw that need and rose to meet it, the elders were freed to focus on shepherding eternal souls. Because I recruited those volunteers, our pastor didn't have to spend his Saturday doing it. Because I deferred to the elders' collective wisdom on that complex issue, a younger deacon learned the value of humble respect. Because I loved that senior saint in her distress, she was lifted from her despair and made more eager to see Christ's face. Because I quelled that conflict, the gospel was able to go forth in power. Elders and deacons were God's idea. His vision for these offices working together in concert is glorious. And when it happens, when the offices work together, dance together in concert, the potential for gospel impact is incalculable. It's it's not, not that church officers do all the ministry and you guys show up to receive the benefits and get your religious goods and services for the week. No, we lead in the ministry. We facilitate the ministry. We are on the supply line for the sake of you who are on the front line. Think of it this way. Elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, but the congregation does ministry. Elders lead, deacons facilitate. It's like deacons lay out the roads, the railroad on which the train of the gospel can run. They facilitate it, but it is you all, the members who are responsible finally for the mission. We all need one another working together in accordance with God's blueprint here in scripture. And that's not just a throwaway statement. I mean, God's blueprint in scripture, which is another way of saying the Bible has things to say about elders and deacons. We don't have to only lean on tradition or custom. We need to come to the blueprint of his word. And when we do that, we at RCBC will start to be the kind of vehicle for God's glory that Richmonders, our fellow neighbors, so desperately need to see. Well, in conclusion, notice back in Philippians, there in verse two, that Paul concludes his greeting with the words grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. Peace. You will scan your Bible in vain to ever find the reverse. You will never find, Paul saying, peace and grace. And the order matters. It's always grace and peace because you can't have the second without the first. Without God's grace, there can be no peace. No peace with God and no true peace with one another. And don't miss the source of it all, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Paul has already mentioned, I mean, I just started this series on Philippians. I've preached like two verses. Do you realize Paul has already mentioned Jesus' name three times? This is his preeminent theme. Saints compose his church Elders lead his church, deacons serve his church, but Jesus makes his church. Jesus rules his church. Remember, remember, we saw Paul doing something unusual by introducing himself to the Philippians, not as an apostle, but as a what? Servant, slave. You know that word only appears one other time in Philippians. Chapter two, starting in verse six. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He would ultimately die a slave's death, but then rise triumphant as a king. The great theme of Philippians, oh friend, the great theme of Philippians is not joy for the sake of joy. It's Joy because of Jesus. And when that captures your imagination and starts to sink down into your heart, then you too can be buoyant and confident, whatever your circumstances. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray you would make us buoyant and confident, not because the circumstances of our lives are so hopeful, but because you are a God in whom our hope is found. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that loves and works together and serves one another well as elders lead and deacons serve and all of us do the work of ministry for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.